Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your goodness to us. We thank you for the testimony that we heard about the body of Christ in another state and how you work so magnificently wherever you plant your people. We understand that you have a unique plan for each individual and for each city. Father, we um, do lift up also our brother Servi in Mongolia and his family. And, and as they weathered horrible, below zero temperatures all winter long, we pray you'd give them your grace and strength and a plan uh, for the continuance of your work there, also for the unrest in Cairo tonight and uh, all that is going on in the Middle East. And we can see your hand behind it all, but we know there's a lot of suffering and a lot of anger in these countries. And we pray that Jesus would be glorified and those who know you there would see this as an opportunity to be used in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we left off last time with Moses, we saw how that God was calling him for his purpose through a burning bush. And as God was telling him what he wanted Moses to do, Moses wasn't so excited about doing it, was he? He had several excuses. Uh, five of them, to be exact, that we saw in the last chapter. Uh, the first excuse is, I'm incapable, God. Uh, Moses said, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh. I'm not capable to do it. Uh, the second excuse is, I'm unknowledgeable, Lord. Um, they're going to ask me a question, and I won't know the answer to it. They might ask me your name, and I don't know what to tell them. The third thing is, he said, I'm fearful. What if I tell them what you want me to tell them, and nobody believes me? So he's setting up imaginary scenarios and using that as an excuse, saying, I'm going to be too afraid. The fourth excuse was, I'm unsuitable. I'm not the one for the job. You need a spokesperson. I'm a man, he said, of uncircumcised lips, or I have a speech impediment. I stutter. But we discovered that those four excuses were really a front for the fifth and real reason. Remember we quoted Billy Sunday who said, an excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. So he gave several excuses, but the bottom line truth was when he said, send somebody else, Lord, send somebody else. So the truth was he was inflexible. He just didn't want to do it. Send somebody else. So we read in chapter 4 that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Now here's a principle, and we're going to look at a couple of verses in chapter 4 that I had to skip over very quickly last week before we close, and I just need to treat them. But here's a bottom line problem I think you could relate to, at least some of you. Moses called God the Lord, but he didn't treat God like he was the Lord. It's one thing to call him Lord, which means ruler, sovereign, you're in charge, you call the shots, I do what you say, you say jump, and my only response is, and how high would you like? That's what a Lord is. But though he said the word Lord, he didn't treat God as Lord. Now Peter had that problem in the New Testament. You remember the story when Peter, in the book of Acts, was at Joppa, and he was praying, and the Lord gave him a vision at noontime. And in the vision, he saw unkosher beasts, animals, four-footed things. And the Lord said, Peter, get up, kill those things and eat them. And Peter said, not so, Lord. I've never had anything unkosher or unclean. Did you get what he said? Not so, Lord. You can't do that. That's a self-canceling statement. You can say, not so, you, or not so, friend, but you can't say not so and Lord in the same sentence. Because if he's Lord, then you don't say not so. You go, so, Lord, when would you like me to do that? That's the problem Peter had. I've discovered in Spanish, and I, I had four years of Spanish in high school, I forgot most of it, but that there's an interesting problem similar to this in the, in the Spanish language. The word for mister is senor, and the word for Lord is 
Señor, El Señor, the Lord. But for the outsider listening to it, it would sound like if you say Señor Jones or Señor Jesus, that it's the same thing. In English, that problem remains for us. We call him Lord, but we don't treat him as that. And that is one of Moses' issues here. So, here's what God does. God acquiesces to what Moses is complaining about, and he allows Aaron, his older brother, to be the spokesperson. So in effect, God is going to reveal what he needs to reveal to Moses. Moses is going to tell Aaron what the Lord said, and Aaron is going to be the spokesman before Pharaoh. But understand that Aaron was not God's highest. He was not God's highest choice. In fact, Aaron causes problems later on. Aaron does not have the leadership capability to say no when there's rebellion in the camp. When Moses will go up on Mount Sinai to receive the law and Aaron will be back in the camp and the children of Israel want to build a golden calf, Aaron goes along with them instead of putting his foot down and saying, no, that's not going to be done, that's not right, this is not what our God wants. So he will cause problems later on. Now here's a principle I want you to remember. God always seeks to bring you to the highest level possible in life to use you. And he will always do the best for you at that level. But we can settle for several rungs down the ladder, one or two or three or four, because we have excuses, we don't cooperate, we don't obey Him. And so here's God wanting to bring us to the highest possible level and bless us and do the best for us at that level. But we sometimes don't allow Him to bring us to that level. And so we settle for second or third best. As I see it in those chapters that we covered last week, Moses let his own inadequacy overshadow God's adequacy. It wasn't about Moses, and God will reinforce that. It's about God. So back in chapter 4, verse 21, there's just a couple verses I want to touch on before we jump into the next two chapters. <laughs> Good luck finishing them tonight. Um, verse 21 is troubling, and i got to comment on it. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, uh, see, that all, uh, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. What's up with that? Why would God say, okay, go and do what I want you to do, but I'm going to harden his heart. So what's the point? Well, that's an, a frequently asked question. And I, I want to tell you the answer. The Hebrew word for harden here is the Hebrew word chazak. Chazak. Say that. Chazak. And you got to do this because you'll get the guy in the neck right in front of you. Chazak. And chazak means to fortify or to strengthen. To fortify or to strengthen. Later on, we're going to read that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. It's a totally different word. It's the word kabod, which means heavy. He makes his own heart insensible. That's another translation of kabod, heavy or insensible. He makes his own choice. And then God comes along and fortifies the choice that he makes. Do you understand the difference? He makes the choice, and God will fortify the choice that he will make. So God is saying, okay, Pharaoh, make a choice. Whatever choice you make, for good or evil, I'm going to fortify or harden or strengthen the resolve that you have. So the Pharaoh will harden his own heart, kabod. God will come along and chazak his heart, fortify it, strengthen it. And so that helps us understand the dilemma. Verse 24 of chapter 4. It came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him, that's Moses, and sought to kill him. Okay, okay, again we go, what's up with that? So why would God choose him, first of all? And then after choosing him, why would God then seek to kill him? Well, let's read on. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet. It's amazing what you read in the Bible. And said, 
Surely you are a husband of blood to me. It sounds like Zipporah is mad at Moses. And so he capitalized, that is the Lord, let him go. That is Moses. And then she said, you, to Moses, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Now we understand a couple things by these verses. It's evident, number one, Moses neglected to circumcise his son. He didn't do it. Well, that's a problem. Because go all the way back to Genesis in your mind when God made a covenant with Abraham. And the Lord said, Abraham, from now on, not only your son, but your descendants in every generation will keep a covenant with me. And here is the covenant between me and you. Every male child will be circumcised the eighth day. They were then to be the people of the covenant, and that was the sign of the covenant. So, Moses neglected to show that he believed, like Abraham believed in God, it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he circumcised his son. Moses failed to show that he believed God. Well, here's the problem. He's the leader of the covenant people. He's the leader of the people that are circumcising their children because they believe God. And he himself is neglecting to do it. God has a problem with that. And I know it sounds harsh that God sought to kill him. But you know what? There is a principle throughout the Bible that God will often deal harder with his leaders than with the people that the leaders lead. The New Testament says, be not many teachers or masters. You'll receive the greater condemnation. Here's a question. Why did he neglect to circumcise his son? If he's going to lead the people, but he's not going to circumcise his son, why did he do it? We don't know for certain, but based upon the response that's coming from Zipporah, he might have suggested it early on in the marriage. Hey, I just want you to know that in, in where I grew up, my belief system, we circumcise our boys. And she probably was not into the whole ritual at all. Says, we don't do that in my country. It's not part of our custom. It's not part of our culture. I don't want to do that. And what I think happened is Moses acquiesced to his wife because he didn't want to make waves, didn't want the hassle, didn't want the hassle. And that's a problem. When a husband fails to be the spiritual leader of a home and will rather acquiesce and not hassle rather than leading his wife and his children along. And that's why there's always a danger when husbands and wives disagree on spiritual matters. Now, I know when people are young and in love, oh, it'll work out. God will work it all out. Even though the Bible says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, I'll win her, I'll win him to Christ in this marriage. Oh, really? Well, they might make a decision and harden their heart and God might come along and confirm that decision. So it's better to work that out in advance and it seems like they have not worked that out at all. I have a text question. Let's throw that up on the screen so we can answer it. It says, are the king and the pharaoh the same person? Yes, they are. The pharaoh is a particular type of king indigenous to the nation and the culture of Egypt. Uh, the pharaoh wasn't a first name. It was a designation like a monarch or a sovereign or a king. And so the Bible uses these two terms interchangeably. There's not like a pharaoh and a sub-pharaoh called the king. The king and the pharaoh are identical. Now, chapter 5, where we really want to start tonight, begins what I'm going to call the Great Confrontation. In this corner, ladies and gentlemen, is the man of God named Moses. And in this corner, ladies and gentlemen, is the man of the world called Pharaoh. And they're about to have a mighty clash. What the man of the world doesn't understand is that the odds are stacked against him. Because Moses, imperfect, filled with excuses... God issues is Moses, the man of God, and the power of God is going to work through him. Chapter 5, verse 1, afterward, Moses and Aaron, see, they're both together now, so brothers, Moses and his older brother Aaron, went in and told Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? 
I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. It's a good question. Who is the Lord? So, God's going to introduce himself to Pharaoh through ten plagues. So he will know unmistakably who the Lord is. Now, I've got to tell you, to be fair to Pharaoh, that didn't come out right, but to be fair to Pharaoh, um, to, for him to ask this question is understandable. It might sound defiant, and no doubt at its very base, its very root, it is. But it's not like he knows God, or he knows that this people believes in that God. He legitimately doesn't know who Yahweh, their God, is. And here's why. The Egyptians considered the Pharaoh families to be deity, related to the sun god Ra. So Pharaoh grew up believing he was a deity, and he knew who Osiris was, and he knew who Ra was, and he knew who Hekat was, and all of the other gods and goddesses of the land. But he goes, well, who is Yahweh? That's the name that Moses says, presumably to him, the name of the Lord. Who is he? Now, we don't know for certain, but there's a rabbinical legend that says when Moses came and stood before Pharaoh and says, let my people go, thus the Lord says this, that Pharaoh turned to his 70 court counselors and said these words, do you know a God by this name, the God of eternity, Yahweh? And they said, we have sought in all of the books of all of the peoples among all of the names of all of the gods and have not found Yahweh among them. Now, that's not in the Bible, but that's what the rabbis said. And it's a legend that was passed down. It may or may not be true. But here's a Pharaoh who didn't know who this God was. Verse three. So they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now, watch this, please. Isn't that nice? Please let us go three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. Notice it's a direct approach, but it's a soft approach. It's a ask permission approach. They don't come in and say, okay, you pagan turkey. You better do what we say or you're toast. Please was the request. A very sweet and soft approach. At first, it'll change, trust me. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. I mentioned the approach will change. You'll see that next week. However, I do see a pattern. And it's part of God's grace. You see, God first comes in... Um, with revelation and with grace and with mercy and with invitation before he comes in with judgment. Way before God sent a flood, the Bible says God sent Noah and he's called a preacher of righteousness. He was a testimony to the people of long suffering and patience. And they saw him and heard those messages week after week and month after month while that ark was going up. And they heard that merciful cry and invitation long before God sent a flood. And so it is here. Before God will judge Egypt comes this gracious approach and invitation. Verse 5, Moses said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers saying, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. So you see Pharaoh's starting to harden his heart and God's going to fortify that. But he's starting to just sort of dig his heels in and make life harder for them. The way I see it, Pharaoh is a lot like Satan. As soon as Pharaoh sees the the people of Israel wanting to get serious about God and worship God and hold a feast to the Lord, Pharaoh puts his foot down and makes life harder for them. And I say that's a lot like the devil because, you see, whenever a person comes to a place in his or her life where they think, you know, I'm curious about the things of God. I'm going to start going to church and I'm going to start asking questions and I'd like to see about my life being changed. I don't want to live this way any longer. Or if it's a Christian 
who says, I really want to give God 100%. I don't want to give Him the leftovers. I really want to live in such a way that He's the Lord of my life. Do you think, with that decision, that Satan and all of his demons are going to give you a standing ovation for that? You think they're going to sit idly by and go, that's a great choice, we agree with that. No, that's when they're going to dig their heels in and often the attacks will come. And that's why when people come, they go, I don't get it. Man, I've been seeking the Lord more than ever before and I've been more spiritual and more devoted and I've seen yet more trials in my life. And I got to say, I go, that's a good sign. It's a good sign. It sort of cements in my own heart this whole spiritual warfare thing that we're talking about. Now, I know that Satan must submit to God's power. But he's not going to go away without a fight. Remember in the New Testament, the dad who had a son who was demon-possessed, and that father brought that son to Jesus, implored Jesus, Jesus, please, I brought this kid to your disciples. They couldn't do anything about it. Would you please change his life? It says, as the boy was coming to Jesus, the demon threw him down and tore him. That demon that inhabited that boy knew that that boy's life would be changed in a little bit because he's confronting the power of all powers. And he's not going to go down without a fight. One person put it this way. So long as a person has no desire to come to Christ, the devil will leave him alone. But once the soul is awakened to his need of a savior and begins to seriously seek him, Satan will put forth every effort to hinder him. I want you to be aware of this now because you're going to see this analogy of the devil and Satan grow throughout the book of Exodus. He becomes a type of the enemy, a type of Satan very clearly as we go on. Verse 8. And you shall lay on them the quota of the bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it for they are idle. Therefore they cry out saying, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men that they may labor in it and let them not regard false words. Do you understand his reasoning? What he's saying basically is this. If they have so much time on their hands that they think they can take a week off work to go out in the wilderness and have a little sacrifice party to the Lord, it must mean they don't have enough work. I'm going to give them more work because they're saying we need a week vacation. So it was punitive, his response. Look at what, um, in verse 9, what uh, Pharaoh calls the revelation of God. Um, And let them not regard false words. You get that? Pharaoh regards the words that God spoke to Moses, and Moses gave to Aaron, and Aaron gives to Pharaoh the words of God as false words. This shouldn't surprise us. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, these words, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The unbeliever sees the Bible, the Word of God, as pure fiction, false words. You remember in the New Testament uh, when Paul stood before King Agrippa and uh, Paul is giving his defense, telling King Agrippa, what happened to him when he was arrested in Jerusalem. But what Paul does is he reaches back in the Old Testament. He quotes the prophets and he quotes the law. He quotes the scripture of the Old Testament. And when he's quoting that, Festus, who was there on trial, also a Roman official, said, Paul, your much learning is driving you crazy, man. You're nuts. You actually believe that stuff? That's nuts. It's the same sentiment, false words. And the taskmasters, verse 10 of the people, and their officers went out and spoke to the people saying, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go, get yourself straw where you can find it. Yet none of your works shall be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble. They didn't have straw. They had to gather stubble instead of straw. Stubble was part of the stalk of the grain and the corn that was left over in a field after harvest. And uh, whatever 
they could get, they got from those fields. And whatever weeds, dried weeds, that also would constitute stubble as well. When the children of Israel, or let me put it this way, when slaves made bricks for the Egyptians, and there's lots of archaeological evidence of that throughout the land, they made bricks that we're pretty familiar with in this state. They made adobe bricks. Um, They were between 14 and 20 inches long, between 7 to 9 inches wide and about that thick. And they would lace straw to fortify them so that they wouldn't crack. If you've ever seen old walls and homes where they have either wood or metal lath, it's called, and they put plaster, lath and plaster. The lath um, keeps the plaster from falling out of the wall over time. Those adobe bricks can dry out in the sun, and what keeps them together is the brick, the straw. In this case, the weeds. Now, they've discovered in archaeology that when bricks were made by the slaves, they were always stamped, each brick, with the name of the king who commissioned the work to be done. And they they built uh, homes with them, they built towers with them, they built walls, all adobe bricks. And they even built some tombs. The great stone pyramids were for the great pharaohs. There were a lot of those around too. But the common building material was adobe brick. So the children of Israel would make these bricks. They would stamp the king in them. But here's what I wanted to say. There's archaeological evidence where they find layers of brick with straw in them, full-length straw for fortification, layers above that, which were added later, that have stubble in them, weeds, and other layers on top that have nothing but clay to them to fortify the story, to authenticate the story that we read here. They have found that archaeologically. And, verse 13, the taskmasters force them to hurry, saying, fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. So Pharaoh is very unreasonable with men and very stingy with straw, and God's going to punch his lights out because of it. We have a question that came up. It's a question I knew would be asked. Um, Let's put it up and you'll see it. Why did they ask to go for three days when they weren't coming back? Now, that's a great question. I knew somebody was going to ask that. And honestly, I've discovered the commentators don't like that question because nobody really deals with it. The best I can come up with is, it's pretty simple. God told Moses back in chapter 3 and 4, go to Pharaoh and tell them, let us go for three days in the wilderness. That's what God said. So he's simply obeying what God told him to do. Yes, they weren't coming back. This could be a test balloon. Look, would you just let us go for three days? Perhaps this was one of the um, indicators of God's grace and mercy. Because God wanted his people to be able to worship him freely. And the idea is, will you let God's people dwell in your land, not worshiping your gods, but worshiping their God in an open way, in a freedom of religion way. Would you at least allow that? Maybe that would have stayed some of God's judgment on them. Because God said, you know, he's not going to let you go except with a mighty hand. And, And he hardened his heart, but he didn't have to harden his heart. So this could have been a test balloon to open the door to see if there would be a freedom of religion before they would go all the way. And perhaps that would have lessened God's judgment depending on the decision of his heart. Hard to say. Nobody really addresses that question much. But I thought I'd bring it up since you asked. Verse 8. Oh, I already read that. Verse 13. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill. Read that. Verse 14. Also the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? (sighs) Do you see what's happening? Moses is obeying God. Moses is saying exactly what God wants him to say. And yet, Pharaoh isn't budging. In fact... Pharaoh is moving in the opposite direction, making life not easier, but harder for them. Now Moses is frustrated. The children of Israel are more oppressed, suffering more. And so here's the question I ask at this point. Is God still 
sovereign? Is God still sovereign? At this point, is God still sovereign? Yes. Okay, of course, you're going to say yes to that because, yeah, he is. We know the rest of the story. How about in your life when you pray and you pray and you hold on to God's promises and it doesn't seem to be working? It's not going the way you thought it would go. Is God still sovereign? I'm bringing this up, folks, because if truly, if you can get your heart around the sovereignty of God, your life will be different. If you can look at God's incredible ability to direct your life from beginning to end, good and bad, if you can rest in that, it will be for you a soft pillow to a tired heart. I commend to you Job, one of the oldest books, perhaps the very first one in the Bible, as old as the patriarchs. You know his story. One day he enjoyed ten children. He loved them. He pampered them. It was God's gift to him. In one day he lost ten children. He lost his health. And unfortunately, he didn't lose his friends. They came to him and pestered him. But you know what he said when he lost it all. He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can you imagine after losing your children to say, you know what? God gave life to begin with. God has the right to take them all away from me. They were his to give me anyway. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He got his heart around the sovereignty of God and it was for him a soft pillow to a tired heart. Moses hasn't gotten his heart around that yet. Oh, he will. He will eventually. But if we could do that, our lives would certainly change. Now, the condition of the children of Israel was very much like our condition. The children of Israel were totally helpless They couldn't deliver themselves. They didn't have the strength to fight against Pharaoh and his army. They couldn't escape Egypt. They were completely dependent on an outside source, and that is God. That was our condition. The Bible says in Ephesians, you were without Christ, having no hope, and without God in this world. Couldn't help yourself. Couldn't deliver yourself. Couldn't turn over a new leaf. Jesus put it this way, that which is of the flesh is flesh. You could not change yourself. You and I depended on the outside source of God through Christ to enable us to be saved, to be born again. I'm bringing that up because I want you to have compassion when you see hardened unbelievers. They harden their heart and they'll say some pretty nasty things to you if you represent God correctly. and They'll shake their fist at God. Just Just have a little pity for them. They're blinded. They can't see it. Just like if there was a physically blind person and you described a beautiful sunset and and you could do that all night and they would say, that sounds wonderful, but I can't see it. Or if you were described to somebody who was deaf, a beautiful symphony or a, a concert. Again, that'd be great, but they can't hear it. They lack the capability. And so it is with an unbeliever. We were in that same position. Verse 15. Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? Did you notice that? Who did they cry out to? They cried out to Pharaoh. Hmm, I see that as a mistake. Why didn't they first cry out to God? No, they go to the boss. This is a civil issue. I'm going to protest. I'm going to go to the government with this one. I'm going to change the laws in Egypt. I don't like these things. They didn't pray first. They complained to the Pharaoh. And they said, there's no straw given to your servants. And they say to us, make brick. And indeed, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. Idle. Therefore you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore go now and work, for no straw shall be given you, yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. Before somebody texts me a question on this, I want to kind of nip it in the bud. Sounds a bit odd that the punishment for the inability to keep the quota up is to give them more work. We're not going to give you straw. You're not delivering the quota. So I'm going to now make you do more. That just sounds totally unreasonable. If French Egyptologist 
some years ago stumbled upon a piece of papyrus with Egyptian writing on it that described 12 brickmaker slaves who were unable to fulfill their quota or to fulfill the job, actually, the papyrus said. They failed at their job. So the punishment for those 12 slaves was to be given more work. So it is in line with history and with uh, Egyptological records uh, that the punishment for slaves was to either kill them or drive them into the ground by more labor. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Something else I want to bring up. Uh, Some believe it's highly unusual and even unlikely that a group of slaves would be able to have an audience with Pharaoh, right? I mean, he's Pharaoh. He's not going to meet with slaves. He might meet with his executive staff, but he's not going to meet with slaves. But actually, he did meet with slaves, and it was good policy for him. Pharaoh was smart. He thought, if I can meet with the slaves and tell them what Moses and Aaron are trying to pull, I can get the people to turn on their leaders. It'll be a civil war. They'll oust the leaders. It'll be a coup among them, and this thing will never get off the ground. He was very wise to turn people against their own leaders by having an audience with the population. And so he did. But I want to get back to a point I just mentioned. Rather than going to the king, they should have gone to... Aaron and Moses, and said, okay, you heard from God, cool, life is pretty tough, can we get together and have a prayer meeting, can we talk to God about this, because it's really hard, and we're just going to voice our dependence, and we're going to, as one group of people, cry out to the Lord together, they didn't do that, I think this sets the turn, the, the, the tone for the next 40 years, because for the next 40 years, they're going to be complaining against God's will, and complaining against God's leaders. Instead of praying first, here's what I want to say. When things get bad for you at work and you're tempted to complain to your coworkers or complain to your boss or go to the HR department, why don't you take it to God first? Have you ever thought about that? I'm God's child. I'm going to pray about this first. I'm going to ask God for wisdom about this first instead of taking it to a human court and a human level. And I think especially as children of God, we have to do that. God's people didn't hear. Verse 20, then, as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron, who stood there to meet them. You know this isn't going to go over good. And they said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge. That's what the people say to Moses and Aaron. Because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Ouch. Talk about being misunderstood. You know why they were misunderstood? Because the children of Israel didn't have the full information. They just had a little little piece of it. They didn't see the big picture of what God was doing. So this is a preview of coming attractions. Moses and Aaron get lambasted by God's people. They're misunderstood. I've discovered something like this. Opposition within the ranks of God's people can be far worse than the persecution that comes from the world. The infighting and the squabbling and the level of rancor that can be among God's own people who won't submit themselves humbly to one another in the sight of God and to Scripture can be overwhelming. And that is why Stuart Briscoe, a wise old pastor, said every pastor needs to have the mind of a scholar, the heart of a child, and the hide of a rhinoceros. Moses hasn't developed that, but he will eventually. Verse 22, so Moses returned to the Lord. Ah, that's good. It's a good sign. One of his secrets is that Moses, even though he'll complain, takes it to the Lord, goes back to the Lord, returns to the Lord. And the word indicates something he did on a repeated basis. He would go back to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? Two questions. Why are you hurting your people? And why did you pick me to help you hurt your people? I don't like this job. This is a crummy job description. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, 
He has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. You can understand it. Moses would be a bit confused. Okay, let's see. A bush talked to me. And then these cool, crazy signs happened. I threw my rod down. It became a snake. I picked it up. It turned into a rod again. I put my hand in my breast. It turned into a leprous hand. I put it back. It was cleansed. So I got God's promise. I got signs. And I got a bush talking to me. So it's pretty obvious that God has called me. Yet, when I do what God says, it backfires. So what's up with that? There seems to be, in Moses' mind, a discrepancy between what God promised and what is actually happening. Moses' mistake, listen carefully, is in presuming how and when God would fulfill his promise. How and when God would fulfill his promise. It seems that Moses expected... This is going to be a cakewalk. I'm going to go in, give one little speech. It's done. Is that what God told him? No, no, no. Listen to what God told him. We read it last week at the burning bush in chapter three. But I am sure God said, but I am sure the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. And so I will stretch out my hand with wonders and signs. And after that, he will let you go. The wonders and signs won't happen until starting with next chapter. So God told Moses, okay, you're going to go, you're going to talk to Pharaoh, and he's not going to listen to you. Your little cool speech won't work at first. He's going to harden his heart. I'm going to confirm that hardening and stiffen it really tight so I can bop him really good. And then I'm going to do miraculous signs so unmistakably I'm going to answer his yearning when he said, who is the Lord? I want to answer that question for him and I'm going to do it with mighty signs and wonders. Moses didn't remember that part of the conversation from the Lord. Can I just suggest that when you read the Bible, read the fine print in the contract. Read every word, read the tenses. Exactly what God says in the promise and how he said it. Now chapter 6, 15 minutes to do 6. God answers this discouraging, discouraged leader. The Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, that's the language of the burning bush, for with a strong hand, he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said, I am The Lord. Now you notice the word Lord has all capital letters in it. Does it have it in your Bible? When you read that, L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's the Hebrew word, as I've been saying, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. I am that I am. Why does God tell Moses his name again? Do you think Moses forgot it? Is he like reintroducing himself to Moses? No, he's simply saying... I am going to fulfill the promise that I made and the the promise is based upon my character and my ability. I am. I am that I am. I'm the becoming one, the eternal one from beginning to end. What I'm going to do is based upon my name. So I give you my name and my word. My name is my bond. It's tantamount to God taking the check and signing his name to it. And if you see that name on the check, you know he's good for it. God can do anything. Don't worry about it. Signs and wonders are coming. I am am the Lord, Yahweh. Verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But my name, Lord, Hebrew, Yahweh, or Yahweh, was not known. I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. And I have heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. I have remembered my covenant. Allow me to unpack those verses for you. First of all, we have lost the pronunciation of the term capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's convenient for us because we read it as Lord. But we don't know what the original pronunciation of the name I am or God was. What we are left with, as I mentioned last week, is a four-consonant word called the tetragrammaton. I'm going to show you a slide up on the screen and we'll go from there. Okay, can you see that up there? The Tetragrammaton, four-lettered name. Now, on the left where it says Hebrew, those are the four letters. Yod, He, Vav, He. That's what we're left with. 
As time went on, a group of Old Testament scholars who translated the Old Testament between the 7th and the 11th century called Masoretes, they gave us the Masoretic text, decided to take the consonants of Yahweh and the vowels of Adonai and combine them so that when the Hebrews would see that construction, they wouldn't say anything. They would pass on as to respect the name of the Lord. Or they would just say Adonai and not this term. But the overwhelming opinion of the scholars is that the name of God was originally pronounced Yahweh or Yahweh. That's their opinion. And one of the evidences of that is we have a shortened form four times in the Old Testament, once in Psalms, three times in Isaiah, the shortened form called Yah. Have you seen that in your Bible when you read in Psalms or, or especially Isaiah? Yah, Yah the Lord. That's the beginning part or the contraction of the name of God, Yahweh. So that's why you'll hear me say the name Yahweh when I come to Lord or Yahweh, however you want to pronounce it. That's, that's what most people believe is pronounced. Okay, here's what the Lord says here. They didn't know that name before. They knew me as God Almighty, El Shaddai. That's how God appears to Abram in Genesis chapter 17. When he established his covenant, he says, I am Almighty God, Genesis 17, walk before me and be blameless. I don't want you to misunderstand, however. The patriarchs had heard the name Yahweh. They heard that name. Genesis 4 is the first time we find it. It says, men began to call on the name of the Lord or Yahweh. So they knew the name, but mostly they knew God as El Shaddai, the mighty, the almighty God. And that's what they referred to him as. They heard of Yahweh, but the name El Shaddai was more familiar to them. And what God is saying is the relationship I had with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was based upon my name, El Shaddai, the almighty God. Now I'm introducing myself as I am that I am. And the covenant that I make with Moses in the law is based upon that name. That, that's what this uh, is, is spelled out. That's what it means. Verse 6. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem. The word redeem is ga'al. Gaal. Does that sound familiar? Have you ever heard of Goel, the kinsman redeemer? When we get to the book of Ruth, Goel, the kinsman redeemer, is the one who Gaal redeems. That's going to become a type of Christ. God is saying, I am the kinsman redeemer, the Goel will Gaal redeem, buy back his people. With an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. And you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brings you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. Now, I counted seven I will statements. I will, I will, I will, I will. Look at these as the seven I wills of redemption. Redemption is what God will do, not what you can do. That's the emphasis of redemption. The emphasis of redemption isn't what you can do, it's what God does. Whenever you reverse that, you get no peace in your life. Some of you are struggling because it's all about you. I haven't done this lately. I haven't done that lately. I've got to work harder so God will love me more. Some of you have that mindset. As long as you believe that, you will never have peace. When Paul writes Romans 5, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace comes as a result from being called, declared just before God, Holy and righteous before God, based upon not what you did, but what Christ did for you. And when you believe that, you rest. That's why when Paul opens up his letters in the New Testament, he never reverses the order. He says, grace unto you and peace. Grace always precedes peace, because you'll never know the peace of God until you understand the grace of God. That's the order of redemption. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel. But... 
They did not heed Moses because of the anguish of spirit and the cruel bondage. When you have a broken, crushed spirit, it's hard to receive truth. That's just, that's just the way it is. That's why when people are brokenhearted over the loss of somebody because of death, the statements, if any are made, must be short and to the heart and affirming and confirming, but not a long speech. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, go in, tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? He could get his drift. Hey, look at These people should be easy. They're your people. They won't listen to me. It's like the pastor going, God, uh, you want me to witness to unbelievers? My own church won't listen to me. How am I going to go face the unbelieving world? If these people won't listen to me, how will those people listen to me? How will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. There's that excuse again. I'm a stutterer. I'm a stammerer. I'm, I didn't major in speech. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, beginning in verse 14 down to verse 27 is a genealogy. So we made it. We're going to be, we're going to finish tonight. A genealogy, it's a partial genealogy of of Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. There's a bunch of names in it. We're not going to cover them all. Now, you might be asking the question. If not, you should be asking this question. Why is a genealogy plopped right in this narrative? I mean, what possible comfort could this be to anybody reading this through when the children of Israel are in bondage and so far things haven't worked out before Pharaoh, but God still promises, oh, and by the way, here's a bunch of names. Well, it's because God wants the readers to know that Moses and Aaron were selected and perfect for the job. And so as a reminder of that, the genealogy that leads to those two is included here. A couple of other tribes are also included. Here's the idea. God had it all planned out that this exodus would take place. He so knew it in advance that he let Jacob and his sons get into the land of Egypt under Joseph and prosper during that time so that eventually when life got hard, a kid named Moses who would be raised in the courts of Pharaoh would be the perfect one to lead them out. So the most important part of the genealogy is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi, he's mentioned, um, Kohath, one of the sons of Levi, and Amram, the father of Moses and Aaron. So those are the highlighted names as the genealogy goes from Abraham all the way down to Moses as God's chosen deliverer. So any reader would go, okay, what I understand now is God has a plan that he has foreseen all the way back. That's the idea of the genealogy here. By the way, though we may not be good at our genealogies, unless you have a a computer program and you go to genealogy.com and you trace your family tree. In the olden days, did you know that tribal peoples like the children of Israel memorized their family tree? And do you know that today, if you went into a Bedouin tent in the Middle East, the average Bedouin can spend over an hour telling you by memory all of the names all the way back, generation after, they can go on for about an hour, giving you their whole family history. So important to them, they're taught to memorize it from an early age, so they have a rootedness and an identity. Very, very important to them. These are the heads of their father's house. A bunch of names are given. Uh, The name I want you to look at is in verse 16. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generation. And, of course, they made the genes. Uh, Gershon, that one right over your heads. Levi, genes. Get it? Okay. Gershon, Kohath, Merari. The middle name, see it? Kohath? That is the father of Amram, who is the father of Moses. So this genealogy is given. Now, these three sons of Levi, just look at them, because later on they're going to become very important when the tabernacle is set up. And taken down. These are the three guys that will be in charge of it. 
And the sons of Gershon were, they're all given in verse 20, Amram took for himself Jochebed, that's the mother of Moses, and his his father's sister, his wife, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amram were 137, etc., etc. Verse 26, these are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. And it came to pass on the day that the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord. Now he's giving this piece of information again. Behold, I'm of uncircumcised lips. How shall the Pharaoh heed me? What strikes me as very interesting is the author of this is who? Moses. So Moses is obviously not too shy about confessing his faults. So rather than jumping in and going, what a lame dude keeps bringing this up again. He's writing this and he's being very confessional about how inadequate he always felt for God to use him in such a mighty way. And he has this excuse and yet he is called to be God's spokesperson. So here's the summation and the setup for next week. Aaron and Moses went to Pharaoh, were very nice and polite, please let us go. That didn't work out, so now the confrontation begins. In chapter 7 of next week, you're going to see signs and wonders where God is going to judge Egypt and principally aim his judgment at the false gods and goddesses of Egypt. As we close tonight, I want you to meditate and go home with this. Moses saw himself as inadequate. He told that to the Lord. Of course, it was an excuse. And the basic bottom line is, send somebody else. I don't want to do it. But God did use him, and God was committed to using somebody as inadequate as Moses. So when I read that, and I hope when you read that, you are able to say, Okay, Lord, I'm getting the picture. I'm getting the idea. It's not about what I can't do. It's about who you are and what you can do. It's not about what I am not. It's about who you are. Isn't that right? Doesn't God keep saying, I am, I am, but I can't, but I am. Yeah, but, but I am. So whatever little you think you have in terms of talent or giftedness, if you would place that in God's hands, You know what the Lord loves to do? It's just a little bit. He likes to break it and multiply it. Like five loaves and two fish. What are they among so many? You know what Jesus was thinking? Well, put them in my hands and let's see what they are among so many. Clip, 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 break, spread it around. It feeds a multitude. God will take the little that you have. You put it in his hands. Let him touch it. Let him break it. Let him break you. Let him multiply that. And let him feed people. And let him minister to people through you. So you come just as you are. Like that famous song that is sung at the end of every Billy Graham crusade. Just as I am without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Whether you come to God in salvation or you come as a servant wanting to be used. Watch what God will do through your life this week. Heavenly Father, as we close, I believe that's the challenge you want us to walk away with. Uh, We might be used in showing your love and showing your compassion and demonstrating your mercy. Some of us, Lord, are struggling with some very difficult times economically or physically or emotionally. And Lord, we're wondering, like Moses did, Lord, Lord, what's up with that? You've given all these promises to me, and yet things aren't working out. Lord, if we can get our hearts around the sovereign character of a loving God who says, I am, I am. It's not what you can't do. It's not what you can see or not see. It's who I am. And if you would rest in that, 
it will be a soft pillow for a tired heart. I pray for all of these, your people. I thank you for such hungry hearts in the midst of cold weather and for all those who are tuning in online as well. Lord, would you minister to them and would you minister through them this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.